I'm reading from George Zemmel's article, uh, Fashion, published in the American Journal of Sociology in May 1957. Fashion is a form of imitation and so of social equalization. But paradoxically, in changing incessantly, it differentiates one time from another and one social stratum from another. It unites those of a social class and segregates them from others. The elite initiates a fashion, and when the mass imitates it in an effort to obliterate the external distinctions of class, abandons it for a newer mode, a process that quickens with the increase of wealth. Fashion does not exist in tribal and classless societies. It concerns externals and superficialities where irrationality does no harm. It signalizes the lack of personal freedom. Hence, it characterizes the female and the middle class, whose increased social freedom is matched by intense individual subjugation. Social forms are intrinsically more suited to the modifications of fashion than others. The internal unity of the forms called classic makes them immune to change. The general formula in accordance with which we usually interpret the differing aspects of the individual as well as of the public mind may be stated broadly as follows. Recognize two antagonistic forces, tendencies, or characteristics, either of which, if left unaffected, would approach infinity. And it is by the mutual limitation of the two forces that the characteristics of the individual and public mind result. We are constantly seeking ultimate forces, fundamental aspirations, some of which controls our entire conduct. But in no case do we find any single force attaining a perfectly independent expression, and we are thus obliged to separate a majority of the factors and determine the relative extent to which each shall have representation. To do this, we must establish the degree of limitation exercised by the counteraction of some other force, as well as the influence exerted by the latter upon the primitive force. Man has always had a dualistic nature. This fact, however, has had but little effect on the uniformity of his conduct, and this uniformity is usually the result of a number of elements. An action that results from less than a majority of fundamental forces would appear barren and empty. Over an old Flemish house, there stands the mystical inscription, There is more within me. And this is the formula according to which the first impression of an action is supplemented by the far-reaching diversity of causes. Life cannot hope to develop a wealth of inexhaustible possibilities until we come to recognize in every moment and content of existence a pair of forces, each one of which, in striving to go beyond the initial point, has resolved the infinity of the other by mutual impingement into mere tension and desire. While the explanation of some aspects of the soul as the result of the action of two fundamental forces satisfies the theoretical instinct, it furthermore adds a new charm to the image of things, not only by tracing distinctly the outlines of the fact, but also by interpreting the vague, often enigmatic, realization that in the creation of the life of the soul, deeper forces, more unsolved tensions, more comprehensive conflicts and conciliations have been at work than their immediate reality would lead one to suppose. There seem to be two tendencies in the individual soul as well as in society. 
all designations for this most general form of dualism within us undoubtedly emanate from a more or less individual example. This fundamental form of life cannot be reached by exact definition. We must rest content with the separation of this primitive form from a multitude of examples which more or less clearly reveal the really inexpressible element of this duality of our soul. The physiological basis of our being it gives the first hint, for we discover that human nature requires motion and repose, receptiveness and productivity. A masculine and a feminine principle are united in every human being. This type of duality applied to our spiritual nature causes the latter to be guided by the striving towards generalization on the one hand, and on the other by the desire to describe the single special element. Thus, generalization gives rest to the soul, whereas specialization permits it to move from example to example. And the same is true in the world of feeling. On the one hand, we seek peaceful surrender to men and things, on the other, an energetic activity with respect to both. The whole history of society is reflected in the striking conflicts, the compromises, slowly won and quickly lost, between socialistic adaptation to society and individual departure from its demands. We have here the provincial forms, as it were, of those great antagonistic forces which represent the foundations of our individual destiny, and in which our outer as well as our inner life, our inter intellectual as well as our spiritual being, find the poles of their oscillations. Whether these forces be expressed philosophically in the contrast between cosmotheism and the doctrine of inherent differentiation and separate existence of every cosmic entity, or whether they be grounded in practical conflict representing socialism on the one hand or individualism on the other, we have always to deal with the same fundamental form of duality, which is manifested biologically in the contrast between heredity and variation. Of these, the former represents the idea of generalization, of uniformity, of inact similarity of the forms and contents of life. The latter stands for motion, for differentiation of separate elements, producing the restless changing of an individual life. The essential forms of life in the history of our race invariably show the effectiveness of, of these two antagonistic principles. Each in its sphere attempts to combine the interest in duration, unity, and similarity with that in change, specialization, and peculiarity. It becomes self-evident that there is no institution, no law, no estate of life which can uniformly satisfy the full demands of the two opposing principles. The only realization of this condition possible for humanity finds expression in constantly changing approximations, in ever-retracted attempts and ever-revived hopes. It is this that constitutes the whole wealth of our development, the whole incentive to advancement the possibility of grasping a vast proportion of all the infinite combinations of the elements of human character, a proportion that is approaching the unlimited itself. Within the social embodiments of these contrasts, one side is generally maintained by the psychological tendency towards imitation. The charm of imitation in the first place is to be found in the fact that it makes possible an expedient test of power, which 
however, requires no great personal and creative application, but is displayed easily and smoothly because its content is a given quantity. We might define it as the child of thought and thoughtlessness. It affords the pregnant possibility of continually extending the greatest creations of the human spirit without the aid of the forces which were originally the very condition of their birth. Imitation, furthermore, gives to the individual the satisfaction of not standing alone in his actions. Whenever we imitate, we transfer not only the demand for creative activity, but also the responsibility for the action from ourselves to others. Thus, the individual is freed from the worry of choosing and appears simply as a creature of the group, as a vessel of the social contents. The tendency towards imitation characterizes a stage of development in which the desire for expedient personal activity is present, but from which the capacity for possessing the individual acquirements is absent. It is interesting to note the exactness with which children insist upon the repetition of facts, how they constantly clamor for a repetition of the same games and pastimes, how they will object to the slightest variation in the telling of a story they have heard 20 times. In this imitation and inexact adaptation to the past, the child first rises above its momentary existence. The immediate content of life reaches into the past. It expands the present for the child, likewise for primitive man. And the pedantic exactness of this adaptation to the general formula need not be regarded offhand as a token of poverty or narrow narrowness. At this stage, every deviation from imitation of the given facts breaks the connection which alone can now unite the present with something that is more than present, something that tends to expand existence as a mere creature of the moment. The advance beyond this stage is reflected in the circumstance that our thoughts, actions, and feelings are determined by the future as well as by the fixed, past, and traditional factors. The teleological individual represents the counterpole of the imitative mortal. The imitator is the passive individual who believes in social similarity and adapts himself to existing elements. The teleological individual, on the other hand, is ever experimenting, always restlessly striving, and he relies on his own personal conviction. Thus, we see that imitation in all the instances where it is a productive factor represents one of the fundamental tendencies of our character, namely that which contents itself with similarity, with uniformity, and the adaptation of the special to the general, and accentuates the constant element in change. Conversely, Wherever prominence is given to change, wherever individual differentiation, independence, and relief from generality are sought, there imitation is the negative and obstructive principle. The principle of adherence to general formulas, of being and of acting like others, is irreconcilably opposed to the striving to advance to ever new and individual forms of life. For this very reason, social life represents a battleground, of which every inch is stubbornly contested, and social institutions may be looked upon as the peace treaties, in which the constant antagonism of both principles has been reduced externally to a form of cooperation. The vital conditions of fashion as a universal phenomenon in the history of our race are circumscribed by these conceptions. Fashion is the imitation of a given example, 
and satisfies the demand for social adaptation. It leads the individual upon the road which all travel. It furnishes a general condition, which resolves the conduct of every individual into a mere example. At the same time, it satisfies in no less degree the need of differentiation, the tendencies towards dissimilarity, the desire for change and contrast, on the one hand by a constant change of contents, which gives to the fashion of today an individual stamp as opposed to that of yesterday and of tomorrow. On the other hand, because fashions differ for different classes, the fashions of the upper stratum of society are never identical with those of the lower. In fact, they are abandoned by the former as soon as the latter pre prepares to appropriate them. Thus, fashion represents nothing more than one of the many forms of life by a the aid of which we seek to combine in uniform spheres of activity the tendency towards social equalization with the desire for individual differentiation and change. Every phase of the conflicting pair strives visibly beyond the degree of satisfaction that any fashion offers to an absolute control of the sphere of life in question. If we should study the history of fashion, which hitherto have been examined only from the viewpoint of the development of their contents, in, in connection with their importance for the form of the social process, should find that it reflects the history of the attempts to adjust the satisfaction of the two counter-tendencies more and more perfectly to the condition of the existing individual and social culture. The various psychological elements in fashion all conform to this fundamental principle. Fashion, as noted above, is a product of class distinctions and operates like a number of other forms, honor especially, the double function of which consists in resolving within a given circle and at the same time emphasizing it as separate from others. Just as the frame of a picture characterizes the work of art inwardly as a coherent, homogeneous, independent entity, and at the same time outwardly severs all direct relations with the surrounding space, just as the uniform energy of such forms cannot be expressed unless we determine the double effect, both inward and outward, so honor owes its character, and above all its moral rights, to the fact that the individual in his personal honor at the same time represents and maintains that of his social circle and his class. These moral rights, however, are frequently considered unjust by those without the pale. Thus, fashion on the one hand signifies union with those in the same class, the uniformity of a circle characterized by it, and uno ac the exclusion of all other groups. I think that means in the same action, or in one action. Union and segregation are the two fundamental functions which are here inseparably united, and one of which, although or because it forms a logical contrast to the other, becomes the condition of its realization. Fashion is merely a product of social demands, even though the individual object which it creates or recreates may represent a more or less individual need. This is clearly proved by the fact that very frequently not the slightest reason can be found for the creations of fashion from the standpoint of an objective, aesthetic, or other expediency. While in general our wearing apparel is really adapted to our, our needs, there is not a trace of expediency in the methods by which fashion dictates, for example, whether wide or narrow trousers, colored or black scarves, should be worn. As a rule, the material justification for an action coincides with its general adoption. 
but in the case of fashion, there is a complete separ separation of the two elements, and there remains for the individual only the general acceptance as the deciding motive to appropriate it. Judging from the ugly and repugnant things that are sometimes in vogue, it would seem as though fashion were desirous of exhibiting its power by getting us to adopt the most atrocious things for its sake alone. The absolute indifference of fashion to the material standards of life is well illustrated by the way in which it recommends something appropriate in one instance, something abstruse in another, and something materially and aesthetically quite indifferent in a third. The only motivations with which fashion is concerned are formal social ones. The reason why even aesthetically impossible styles seem distinguished, elegant, and artistically tolerable when affected by persons who carry them to the extreme is that the persons who do this are generally the most elegant and pay the greatest attention to their personal appearance, so that under any circumstances we would get the impression of something distinguished and aesthetically cultivated. This impression we accredit to the questionable element of fashion, the latter appealing to our consciousness as the new and consequently most conspicuous feature of the total ensemble. Fashion occasionally will accept objectively determined subjects, such as religious faith, scientific interests, even socialism and individualism, but it does not become operative as fashion until these subjects can be considered independent of the deeper human motives from which they have risen. For this reason, the rule of fashion becomes in such fields unendurable. We therefore see there is a good reason why externals, clothing, social conduct, amusements, uh, constitute the specific field of fashion, for here no dependence is placed on really vital moves of human action. It is the field which we can most easily relinquish to the bent towards imitation, which it would be a sin to follow in important questions. We encounter here a close connection between the consciousness of personality and that of the material forms of life, a connection that runs all through history. The more objective our view of life has become in the last centuries, the more it has stripped the picture of nature of all subjective and anthropomorphic elements, and the more sharply has the conception of individual personality become defined. The social regulation of our inner and outer life is a so sort of embryo condition in which the contrasts of the purely personal and the purely objective are differentiated, the action being synchronous and reciprocal. Therefore, wherever man appears essentially as a social being, we observe neither strict objectivity in the view of life nor absorption and independence in the consciousness of personality. Social forms, apparel, aesthetic judgment, and the whole style of human expression are constantly transformed by fashion in such a way, however, that fashion that is, the latest fashion, in all these things affects only the upper classes. Just as soon as the lower classes begin to copy their style, thereby crossing the line of demarcation the upper classes have drawn and destroying the uniformity of their coherence, the upper classes turn away from this style and adopt a new one, which in turn differentiates them from the masses, and thus the game goes merrily on. Naturally, the lower classes look and strive towards the upper, and they encounter the least resistance in those fields which are subject to the whims of fashion, for it is here that mere external imitation is most readily applied. 
the same process is at work as between the t different sets within the upper classes, although it is not always as visible here as it is, for example, between mistress and maid. Indeed, we may often observe that the more nearly one set has approached an another, the more frantic becomes the desire for imitation from below and the seeking for the new from above. The increase of wealth is bound to hasten the pro process considerably and render it visible because the objects of fashion, embracing as they do the externals of life, are most accessible to the mere call of money, and conformity to the higher set is more easily acquired here than in fields which demand an individual test that gold and silver cannot affect. We see, therefore, that in addition to the element of imitation, the element of demarcation constitutes an important factor of fashion. This is especially noticeable wherever the social structure does not include any superimposed groups, in which case fashion asserts itself in neighboring groups. Among primitive peoples, we often find that closely connected groups living under exactly similar situations develop sharply differentiated fashions, by means of which each group establishes uniformity within, as well as difference without the prescribed set. On the other hand, there exists a widespread predilection for importing fashions from without, and such foreign fashions assume a greater value within the circle, simply become because they did not originate there. The prophet Zephaniah expressed his indignation at the aristocrats who affected imported apparel. As a matter of fact, the exotic origin of fashions seems strongly to favor the exclusiveness of the groups which adopt them. Because of their external origin, these imported fashions create a special and significant form of socialization, which arises through mutual relation to a point without the circle. It sometimes appears as though social elements, just like the axes of vision, converge best at a point that is not too near. The currency, or more precisely, the medium of exchange among primitive races, often consists of objects that are brought in from without. On the Solomon Islands and at Ebo on the Niger, for example, there exists a regular industry for the manufacture of money from shells, etc., which are not employed as a medium of exchange in the place itself, but in neighboring districts to which they are exported. Paris modes are frequently created with the sole intention of setting a fashion elsewhere. This motive of foreignness, which fashion employs in its socializing endeavors, is restricted to higher civilization, because novelty, which foreign origin guarantees in extreme form, is often regarded by primitive races as an evil. This is certainly one of the reasons why primitive conditions of life fa favor a correspondingly infrequent change of fashions. The savage is afraid of strange appearances. The difficulties and dangers that beset his career cause him to scent danger in anything new, which he does not understand and which he cannot assign to a familiar category. Civilization, however, transforms this affectation into its very opposite. Whatever is exceptional, bizarre, or conspicuous, or whatever departs from the customary norm, exercises a peculiar charm upon the man of culture, entirely independent of its material justification. The removal of the feeling of insecurity with reference to all things new was accomplished by the progress of civilization. At the same time, it may be the old inherited prejudice, although it has become purely formal and unconscious, which, in connection with 
the present feeling of security produces this piquant interest in exceptional and odd things. For this reason, the fashions of the upper classes develop their power of exclusion against the lower in proportion as general culture advances, at least until the mingling of classes and the leveling effect of democracy exert its counter-influence. Fashion plays a more conspicuous role in modern times because the differences in our standards of life have become so much more strongly accentuated. For the more numerous and the more sharply drawn those differences are, the greater the opportunities for emphasizing them at every turn. In innumerable instances, this cannot be accomplished by passive inactivity, but only by the development of forms established by fashion. And this has become all the more pronounced since legal restrictions prescribing various forms of apparel and modes of life for different classes have been removed. Two social tendencies are essential to the establishment of fashion, namely the need for union on the one hand and the need of isolation on the other. Should one of these be absent, fashion will not be formed. Its sway will abruptly end. Consequently, the lower classes possess very few modes, and those they have are seldom specific. For this reason, the modes of primitive races are much more stable than ours. Among primitive races, the socializing impulse is much more power powerfully developed than the differentiating impulse. For no matter how decisively the groups may be separated from one another, separation is for the most part hostile in such a way that the very relation, the rejection of which within the classes of civilized races makes fashion reasonable, is absolutely lacking. Segregation by means of differences in clothing, manners, taste, etc. is expedient only where the danger of, of absorption and obliteration exists, as is the case among highly civilized nations. Where these differences do not exist, where we have an absolute antagonism, as for example between not directly friendly groups of primitive races, the development of fashion has no sense at all. And we're only halfway through the article, so I'm just going to skip to his last comment and summary. I have had occasion to point out above that the tempo of fashion depends upon the loss of sensibility to nervous excitements, which are formed by the individual disposition. The latter changes with the ages and combines with the form of the objects in an inextricable mutual influence. We find here also one of the deep relations which we thought to have discovered between the classical and the, quote, natural composition of things. The conception of what is included in the term natural is rather vague and misleading, for as a rule, it is merely an expression of value, which is employed to grace values prized for different reasons, and which has therefore been uniformly supported by the most antagonistic elements. At the same time, we may limit the term natural from a negative standpoint by a process of exclusion, inasmuch as certain forms, impulses, and conceptions can certainly lay no claim to the term, and these are the forms that succumb most rapidly to the changes of fashion because they lack that relation to the fixed center of things and of life, which justifies the claim to permanent existence. Thus, Elizabeth Charlotte of Palatinate, a sister-in-law of Louis XIV, exceedingly masculine in her ways, inspired the fashion at the French court of women acting like men and being addressed as such, whereas the men conduct themselves like women. 
It is self-evident that such behavior can be countenanced by fashion only because it is far removed from that never-absent substance of human relations to which the form of life must eventually return in some way, shape, or manner. We cannot claim that all fashion is unnatural because the existence of fashion itself seems perfectly natural to us as social beings. Yet we can say conversely that absolutely unnatural forms may at least for a time bear the stamp of fashion. To sum up, the peculiarly piquant and suggestive attraction of fashion lies in the contrast between its extensive, all-embracing distribution and its rapid and complete disintegration. And with the latter of these characteristics, the apparent claim to permanent acceptance again stands in contrast. Furthermore, fashion depends no less on the narrow distinctions it draws for a given circle, the intimate connection of which it expresses in the terms of both cause and effect, than it does upon the decisiveness with which it separates the given circle from others. And finally, fashion is based on adoptions by a social set, which demands mutual imitation from its members and thereby releases the individual of all responsibility, ethical and aesthetic, as well as the possibility of producing within these limits individual accentuation and original shading of the elements of fashion. Thus, fashion is shown to be an objective characteristic grouping upon equal terms by social expediency of the antagonistic tendency of life. Okay, that's the end. Whew.